Central Baptist Church, our worship is Christ-centered. We choose the songs we choose. We sing the songs we sing because we believe that the goal of Christian worship is Christ himself. So we exalt style over substance. I'm sorry, we exalt substance. <laughs> we exalt sub substance over style. Our goal is to sing unto Christ. Worship is about him. In Central Baptist Church, you are a beautifully singing, song, singing church. Your voices honor our Lord. Praise God for that. Central Baptist Church, we also believe that every word from Scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, our messages come from Scripture. So this week, we're going to be continue, continuing our series through Colossians. And we're going to be reading out of Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of that that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Before Indy and I had children, we read all the parenting books they were to read. We knew all the theory of parenting, and we were always puzzled that parents were often late. It didn't make sense to us. Why is it so hard to get to places on time? We get to places on time. Why don't parents, especially parents of young children, get to places on time? In theory, that's supposed to work really well. And then we had Boaz. And then we found ourselves really struggling to get to places on time. And we finally understood that theory and practice don't always converge, don't always meet. Yet, they should. And yet, they should. What is more important? Is it doctrine or is it practice? Is it more important to know God or to obey God? Should we know the content of the Bible 
or should we follow what it says? Clearly, the answer is both. Both are important. So we arrive today at a classic transition in most of Paul's letters. Paul often lays out the theology of the letter to then tell us, in light of the theology, here's how you should live. The practice follows the theory. The indicatives precede the imperatives. And still, for the Christian, we see that our Christian life is largely lived outside of us. The Bible has no problem telling us how to live. And yet, in our text today, Paul is going to call us to walk. But the manner that we should walk is indicative of the Christian life. We should walk in Christ. You see, our union with Christ is never separated from our practice of the Christian life. The Christian theology is linked intrinsically with the Christian morality. When God calls us to obey, when God calls us to go, when He says walk, when God calls us to do something, He still does so in light of the gospel. The gospel is not merely the entry gate into the Christian life. It is the totality of Christian life. We come to salvation by finding ourselves in Christ. And we continue our Christian lives in Christ because in Him we live and we move and we have our being. So here's my main point for our time today. The foundation of Christian obedience is not the works we do, but the works that Christ has done on our behalf. So as we look at our text, we're going to look at three points. We're going to be told in verses 6 and 7 that we should walk in Christ. In verse 8, we should reject the world. In verses 9 through 15, we should enjoy the benefits of Christ. So walk in Christ. In, in verse 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ, pointing back, right? This therefore hinges the entire letter, pointing back to everything that he's told us, right? That Christ is victorious. He's the head of the church. His sufferings bring everything in the faithful ones. Pointing back to all that, Paul says, therefore, as you receive Christ. And how did we receive Christ? We know the answer to that, don't we? We received Christ by faith. That's the only way you receive Christ. So as you receive Christ, that is by faith, also 
by faith, walk in Him. One of the greatest discouragements and weakness for Christian, for Christians is the idea that we receive Christ by faith, but then we become spiritual orphans. But then we walk in Him by means other than faith. And yet, Christ promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Imagine someone that is about to take their first step on a tightrope. And you ask them, do you believe you can do it? Well, the answer is clearly yes, if they're about to do it, right? Now imagine this person in the middle of a canyon, halfway through. If you go forward or backwards, it's the same thing. Is that faith still necessary at that point? Can you abandon your faith in the middle of the tightrope? Or, or is the faith the very thing that's going to enable you to take that next step? You see, for the person that's walking on the tightrope, faith was necessary in the beginning. Faith was necessary in the middle. And faith will lead them home. It is this trust, this belief that we can take, that we are able to take the next step. It is this belief that the, that, that the rope is going to hold. It is the belief that we'll have the right and adequate balance. And all of these things amount to confidence so that, so that we can walk. You see, this is how the Christian life is. Faith leads us to Christ, and faith enables us to walk in Christ. Faith redeemed us, faith enables us to walk, and faith will lead us home. You know what the Word says, right? For we walk by faith, and not by sight. I mean, think of the great biblical examples. Rain had not happened on earth, and Noah is told, build an ark. So because Noah believed God, he obeys him. Do you see how, Christian, how, how the obedience of Noah is connected with his faith in God? And by virtue of being united with that ark, Noah and his family is spared the judgment of God. Think about Abraham. He is called to leave his home, to walk to a land. He didn't even know where he was going, but he believed God. He believed that he would possess the land. And he did. Think about Israel in the desert. Well, Egypt wasn't too bad. But God tells them, do not look back to the, to the Red Sea. Look forward because you will cross the Jordan. And when you do, you will enjoy the prosperity of the land. So Israel walks by faith. A faith that is challenged, but by faith nonetheless. Again, 
Think of the prophets. Many of them were killed. Many of them were were beat. Many of them were in prison. Yet they kept calling Israel to faith and repentance. Why? Because they believed the message of God. You see, all that we do that amounts to righteousness and that amounts to service to God has to be born of faith. Ultimately, we look to Jesus Christ, the man of faith. He believed, right? He believed that at the other end of the cross, that was glory. So we see the troubled heart of Christ saying, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus' deepest desire was, but may your will be done and not mine. Why? Because the Son entrusted himself to the Father. And that enabled Christ to endure the cross. So if you're struggling with your faith, if you're struggling with your Christian walk, if you're struggling with sin, apathy, lack of discipline, here's a simple prayer. You can utter it right now. Lord, increase my faith. The Lord always answers this prayer, and you know why? Because the mere fact that we're able to pray this prayer is an indication that the Lord has already given us faith. If we can run to the Lord and know that He is the giver of faith is an indication that we have faith in Him. So when we come to the Lord pleading, asking, Lord, increase my faith, the mere prayer that you are praying is the answer to your prayer. Once a man approached Jesus and said to him, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And do you realize that that's a double statement of faith? I believe. And I also believe that you can help me with my unbelief. So friends, can we just be honest with our prayers? Can we just be honest with our Christian lives? Can we just come honestly before the Lord and say, Lord, I I don't always have faith. Lord, I don't always desire you or to do the things that you want me to do. But Lord, I know that if I come to you, I can find the power and the strength to do it. So Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Look on at verse 7. Paul uses two interesting illustrations to describe the Christian walk. The first one, an agrarian illustration. How should we walk in Christ? Like a tree, rooted. The second one, a construction metaphor. How should we walk in Christ? Like a building with foundations, strong foundations. Wait a minute, Paul. Trees don't walk. Buildings don't walk. As a matter of fact, good trees and good buildings are by definition unmovable. And Paul would say, exactly. Here lays one of the great tensions 
of the Christian life. The process of maturity for the Christian has to be both stable and progressive. We both walk in the Lord and we stand in the Lord. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian life is that Christians first change by not changing. There is a lot more that can, that can be said about this. But the first thing that we as Christians need to know about Christian change is that we change by not changing. Look, I know that in all of our lives, there's plenty of behaviors, habits that need to be changed. But in our foundation, in our roots, our identity with Christ must never change. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. He rejects his father. He asks for his inheritance before his father passes. He squanders his money. He defiles himself. He finds himself far from his father, far from his land. And he thinks, I have an idea. I'll change my identity. I'll go back and no longer will I be a son. I'll go back and I'll be a servant. Then my father will accept me. The prodigal son underestimated how much the father loved him. He thought that in order to change, he needed to change. But the father doesn't even give him an opportunity to speak. As he comes, the father embraces him, gives him dignity, puts a ring on his finger, clothes him, and celebrates his return. And says, there is no way that I will receive you as a servant because you are a son. And that, that you can never lose. And every time you try to make up for the sins that you have done by stepping away from your identity, son, you misunderstand the love that I have for you. You misunderstand the gospel, the promises that I make to you. I keep thinking about my own son and how there are so many things that I would like for him to change. And yet, I don't want him to change anything. I, I would hate for him to ever think that being my son is something that can be changed. I, I want him to know forever that that is his and no one will ever remove that from him regardless of what he does with and in his life. I will always love my son and love him as son. If one day he embraces the Lord Christ Jesus, praise the Lord. If he does not, he's still my son, and I'll pray for him until he does. Friends, I am such a a bad father in comparison to our good heavenly father. And our father wants you to know that his love for you is so much greater than any change of identity 
that you could try to apply to your life. God wants you as you are. God wants you just as you are. I was talking to a saint in this church this past Thursday, and she told me, I was sitting at a sermon, at a revival sermon one day, and I don't remember what the preacher said, but I heard the song, Just As I Am, and I said, Lord, I need to come to you just as I am. And friends, that's the invitation that God is putting before all of us today. Just as you are, come to Him. Now, Just As I Am is a song that can only be sung once. Because when God brings us to Himself, He transforms us. Right? He, he changes us. Now, we're not focusing on that primarily today. We will. But our word today is this. If you belong to Christ, friend, do not underestimate how great, how big, how deep, and how wide His love is for you. Christians change by not change, but also Christians change by living in light of the identity that is already theirs in Christ. We're sons and daughters. We are transformed and yet ever growing. We're, re we're redeemed. We're loved. We are one with Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means the righteousness of Christ is what I'm vested on. When God sees me, He sees the right works, the good works of Christ. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Friend, it is faith. From the beginning to the end, which leads us to abound in thanksgiving, which leads us to the right works, which leads us to relate to God rightly. But it also leads us to the second point. Faith in Christ means rejection of the world. So in verse 8, we're again seeing glimpses of the false teachers that were plaguing, threatening the church in Colossae. The warning here is that the Colossians should, be, should not be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Notice that the warning here is not geared towards the false teachers. The warning here is geared towards the church. The warning here is geared towards the believers. It says, look out, beware, do not fall prey. Friends, it is the job of the church to guard itself against false teaching. It is the job of the church to know the word so deeply that when, when false wisdom comes and presents itself, the church is able to identify it and reject it. This is not an attack on, mo on the modern day discipline of philosophy. Philosophy simply means Love of wisdom. Philosophy is a building block of theology. It is impossible to do theology without philosophy because philosophy is the discipline of thinking. It is fascinating that we as humans are not only able to think, but we are able to think about thinking. And that is good. So Paul is not saying philosophy is bad. What Paul is saying is that empty philosophy is folly that simply disguises itself as wisdom. It is based on the wisdom of 
men. Based on the system that is at work in this world. It is the philosophy that is contrary to Christ. Friends, the world is not impartial to Christ. No, the world is hostile to Christ. The world thinks it loves Christ, but what the world loves is a caricature. It it is a fake image of who Christ is that the world makes after its own self. We all want to accept the Christ that looks like us, that thinks like us, but we don't by nature want to conform our minds to the mind of Christ. The world is not impartial to Christ. The world is hostile to Christ. And along with Christ, the world is hostile to us. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ Himself told us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated us, hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So if we're loved by the world, that's a bad sign. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, this week the mayor's office in my hometown in Brazil put out a social media post that said, Christians should not evangelize those who practice witchcraft. Now, my hometown in Brazil has a lot of witchcraft practices. And, and, and their official Facebook page said, Christians should not evangelize those who practice witchcraft. And why? What is, what is the reason why they said that? Because your truth is yours alone. To which I responded, is your truth true? And my comment, as expected, was deleted. Because it revealed a philosophy that is faulty. It revealed a philosophy without foundation. It revealed a philosophy without roots. Truth is a standard, not an opinion. Truth is to be discovered, not to be established. Wisdom tells us that we must discern the truth and speak the truth. Folly tells us that we should make the truth our own. This is the philosophy that Paul is speaking against. All that glitters is not gold. Eloquence can be deceiving. The intelligentsia can be mistaken. We live in a day and age that scientism is a religion. PhDs are the new priests, and the textbook is the new Bible. And yet, people have never been more misinformed and confused. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the past two years, I just don't know who and want to believe anymore. And why is that? Because all that glitters is not gold. 1 Corinthians 3, For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are Futile. 
So what is gold? Christ is gold. The truth that comes to us from Christ is gold. He himself says, I am the way and the truth. You see, Christ doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth, and He is the standard by which we measure all other things. It is Christ who makes the standard, not us. The wisdom from Christ is what we need. And, oh, friend, do not get your wisdom from the world. That is shifting ground. Get your wisdom from Christ. The world will tell you you are okay even when you're not. Christ will tell you, come to me and I will make you okay. All that He has done for those who are His is unmistakably true and certain. And we're called to reject the empty deceit of the world and enjoy the benefits of the one who is faithful and true. So what are the benefits of Christ? So this is what we're going to look at in the next six verses. So in the next six verses, we're going to see four benefits. And these benefits, friends, are ours if we are united with Christ by faith. Now, remember my main thesis, right? Because we are in the applied section of this letter. We are figuring out how to walk in Christ. But I said in the beginning that the foundation of Christian obedience is not the works we do, but the works that Christ has done in our behalf. So even as we think of how to apply the theology that we have learned in the first half of the letter, even as we think about how to practically walk in Christ, we think of it in light of our union with Him and the benefits that we receive because we are united, we are united with Him. So, as we consider what Christ has done for us, we who are in Him will solidify our identity in Him and therefore know how to walk in Him and also this, will desire to walk in Him. I love to bring this up. You know, when I was in high school, it was so popular to have the WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? Such an important question. And that's the question of walking, right? What would Jesus do? I want to do that as well. But there should be another side to that bracelet that says... What has Jesus done? What has Jesus done informs us of what Jesus would do. It is His work on our behalf that enables us to walk in light of what He has done. We cannot have Jesus as a teacher if we don't first have Him as a Redeemer. We cannot follow the example of Christ if we don't first follow Him as a Savior. We cannot mirror our lives before Christ if He has not first redeemed us, changed our hearts, and given us of His Spirit. 
Verses 9 and 10 say this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. So we're filled in Christ. This means that Jesus is God and we are in Him. This means if we have come to Christ by faith, Christ is to us what the ocean is to a fish. Fish in the ocean never complain that they don't have enough water. Why? Because they have it in abundance. How much more do we have in Christ? Friends, all we need we find in Christ, including the wisdom we need to live in this world. If we have Christ, we have everything we need. You know, that was the one lesson that Indy and I learned in 13 years of infertility. Sometimes the desire for parenting was so great in our hearts. So great that the question would press against us. Do we have everything we need to be whole? And then the question, do we have Christ, would follow. And the answer was yes. And if we have Christ, we have all we need. Friends, that's the reality for you wherever you are in life today. If you have Christ, you have all you need. All your needs are met. You lack nothing. But not only that, we're feeling Christ. That means all power and authority He has, we have. Do you realize that? Do you realize that we have greater authority than any president, king, or dictator in this world? Now stop and think about this. He is the head. We heard it earlier that he's the head of the church. Very clear, right? He's Lord. But now we hear that he is the head over all rule and authority. So there is not one king in this earth that is not under the sovereign control of Jesus Christ. There's not one ruler that acts aside from his sovereignty. This, this is also why the Bible says that we, the church, will judge angels. This is why we don't fear the schemes of the devil. It is because we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. This is why we don't fear government. This is why, even in times that we may be more concerned or less concerned with how government is working, we trust that there is no king greater than Christ. So we trust in Him. But we've also been baptized in Christ. Listen to verses 11 and 12. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful, work, powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Circumcision was the old covenant of, of uh, old covenant symbol, indicating that one belonged to the people of God. The symbol of the flesh being cut off, that which is ungodly, that which is worldly, that which is profane. 
Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham received circumcision as a seal of the old covenants. Through circumcision, members of the old covenant were reminded that they belonged to the people of God. But notice that now the circumcision that matters is the circumcision made without hands. The circumcision for the believer is the circumcision of Christ. So a physical Old Testament concept translate, I'm sorry, a physical Old Covenant concept translates to the New Covenant spiritually. The circumcision that matters is the circumcision that takes place in the hearts. The seal for the believer is the inward truth of baptism that happens in our hearts. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a symbol. It is a reality. It is the actual work of the Lord in us, transforming us and sealing us for the day of redemption. Gives us power to overcome sin. Power to obey God. Power to live in light, uh, in, in a, a life that is pleasant to God. Power to walk in Christ. So remember my opening words today from the text. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. One way that we walk in Christ out of obedience is by being scripturally baptized. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a symbol. However, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is symbolized by water baptism. So if you believe Jesus and you have not been scripturally baptized, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. And I would love to think with you about the realities of baptism. If you're not sure that you believe in Christ, I would still love to talk to you. Because friends, if you don't believe in Christ, you have not been baptized into Christ. And if you have not been baptized into Christ, you're not united with Him. So it is our great desire that you would profess faith in Christ through baptism. And those who have professed faith in Christ have been forgiven in Christ. Now we arrive at verses 13 and 14, and I love these verses. They speak so clearly of the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. Friends, we would have no room for confidence had Christ not died on the cross for us. Verse 13, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is you, this is me, this is all of us before Christ. We were dead, hopeless, and helpless. Trespasses refer to the breaking of God's law. Uncircumcision of the flesh means we were not part of the people of God. The natural condition of every human being is one of separation from God. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so He does not hear. 
Friend, are you holding on to sin? Would you hear the words of hope? Christ is proclaiming to you today. Come by faith. Be united with me and be forgiven. Here's a different question. Are you in your sin and not sure what to do? Look at what the second half of verse 13 says. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The work of victory over sin, deliverance from sin, and righteousness is the work of God. Do you hear the passive language here? God made alive. We don't make ourselves alive. Dead people don't resurrect by themselves. They need the Spirit to be at work in them. So if you are feeling hopeless in your faith, take heart because it is the Lord who works. So pray to the Lord. Would you make me alive? Would you give me life in the Spirit? And notice, it says here that He will forgive all your sins. No one is partially forgiven by God. Everyone that experiences the forgiveness of God experiences forgiveness of all their sins. God cancels the record of that that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, that's good cancel culture, right? Let's cancel that, our sin. This is courtroom language. We're legally condemned for our sins, all of us, regardless of our sin, but God forgives us. And how does He do it? Does He sweep them under the rug? Does He tell us you are okay when we are not? No. He nails them to the cross of Christ. Now I want you to picture something. I want you to picture Christ on the cross about to be lifted up. I want you to picture a nail. Rugged, rusty, ugly, large. I want you to think of your sin. The sin that keeps you from coming to Christ. Picture that sin being written on that nail. And now picture that nail going through our Savior's hand. This is the picture. This is the picture. It's as though that nail is saying, Jesus, take this upon you because I can't. Take this upon yourself because I can't. Friends, this is the picture that we're seeing here. It's the picture of penal substitutionary atonement. Christ is being penalized as a substitute for our sin. It's a high price. It's a high price that he had to pay because the sin that he bore was not his own. The sin that he bore was ours. Desmond Tutu an Anglican bishop and former archbishop of Cape Town who recently passed once very wrongly said 
We may be surprised at the people we find in heaven. That's true. God has a soft spot for sinners. That's true. His standards are quite low. That is not true. That downplays the sacrifice of my Lord on the cross. God's standards are not low. God's standards are high. And they're met by His Son. Only the Son of God Himself can meet those standards. So let me suggest these words instead. Because the, sinners, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. You see the price. The only one who never sinned, God in the flesh, had to die. God's standards are never low. God's standards are high, so high, none of us can meet it, only God Himself. So friends, this is our hope. This is our only hope in life and in death. God's grace is never cheap. It's costly. And because it's costly, it's valuable. It avails much. It avails forgiveness, reconciliation, power, and victory. We have victory in Christ. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ's victory on the cross disarmed his enemies. Often people believe that God and Satan are on equal footing. They're not. Satan has been disarmed. Your greatest concern is not what the enemy can cause you to do or if he can cause you to sin. For the Christian, Satan is like a viper without venom. He can prowl, but he cannot pray. Not because he's weak, but because the strong man, Christ Jesus, has disarmed him. It is not that Satan and his minions are not active. They are. It is that Jesus, when Jesus actually prays, I do not ask that you, the Son praying to the Father, take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus' prayer actually works. And the Father keeps us from the evil one. When Jesus died on the cross, he exposed the devil and all evil spiritual powers to open shame. So the great enemy of the church, the accuser of the brethren, that ancient serpent for the Christian is destroyed, disarmed, defeated. So friend, it is possible to walk in Christ because God has united us with Him. He has sealed us in Him. He has forgiven our sins in Him and given us power in Him to have victory over Satan. What great hope we have in Christ. Let us walk in light of this hope. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're such a great God. Father, the work that you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, through him, is so great. Lord, the offer of salvation is so great for us. We can only bow before you and say, 
Thank you. We can only praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, as you call us to walk in you today, would you enable us to do that by the power that Jesus Christ supplies? We pray that Central Baptist Church would be a holy church because we consider Christ the Holy One who died and gave himself up for us so that we could live. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together.